welcome to the Film Situation Podcast. I'm so thrilled to have Christina Richardson on the Film Situation Podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So Christina, I guess tell us a little bit about yourself. All right, I love this question. It's a very loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) My name is Christina Richardson. I am a filmmaker, a mom. I'm originally from Los Angeles, California, and my family migrated to New York when I was in high school. And that's how I landed here on the East Coast. I am a screenwriter, director, and I'm also the founder of the Bronx Film Initiative, which is an organization that works with New York City public schools and beyond. And we take students through the process of making a film from script to screen by partnering them with industry professionals. And when did you find or found that organization? That was in 2017. What sort of prompted that? That's a, I love that question too. So a little background on me. So I was born in California, Los Angeles. I lived in South Central, the trenches. And I was an actress when I was a child. I was in a situation where my mom, she made a fake address and put us in a school like in the Hollywood area. And she got me into acting because she noticed that I was always performing, always a writer, always very expressive, very vocal about wanting to be an actress. So my mom, she was You had the bug from a young age. I did, since I was like at least eight. So my mom, she found all these resources, and she's like, we're going to get you into acting and stuff like that. So I did. So I did theater, and I did... It was on the set of my first McDonald's commercial when I realized that I wanted to be a director. And I was 12 years old, and I had been waiting all day because on set they make you wait. And I was getting discouraged because this was my first major commercial, and I know that sometimes they may not use you. I was just super nervous. And I think the director felt that. And I was a little girl. I may have cried. I don't, I hate to admit that. (laughs) But I was really just like, when are they going to use me? And the director saw me. He pulled me over and put me in this director's chair. And he's just showing me the lights and pointing at things and telling me what all is going on. There was this huge light that they, it was nighttime by this time. And I'm thinking like, this is supposed to be like a daytime commercial. It's nighttime. I know they're not going to use me. Right. But he showed me this light, which was the sun, and they lit this house at night, and it looked like it was the middle of the day when you got inside. It was incredible. That one experience changed my life forever because ever since, I was like, I want to do what he does. This white, strawberry, blonde guy. (laughs) I was like, I want to do that. Like He's making like a new world. He's making something out of nothing. He's all these people are here and like making this magic, like witnessing movie magic at 12 years old for the first time changed my life. I knew I wanted to do that. So fast forward to my family migrating to New York, it was very challenging to get into that industry here. I, there, I didn't see a way into the industry. First of all, California, Hollywood everywhere, lights, cameras, action, the stars, all that. But in New York, when you get here, it's gray and the buildings are large and overwhelming, and you don't know where's what. Everything just looks big and daunting, and that's how I felt when I came here. I no longer felt like Hollywood. It was just like, I have no idea how I'm going to be that same girl. And how old were you when you came here to New York? Fourteen. Oh, okay. So yeah. fairly young, yeah. Yeah, still young. Yeah. So and where did you live when you came Brooklyn. to New In Brooklyn. I did, yeah. Which so part? Bushwick, Brooklyn. All right. Which looks very different now. Very different now. There weren't any white people in Bushwick when I moved here from New York. It was Spanish, black, a lot of rundown buildings. But now, with gentrification, there's like coffee shops and white people and people walking their dogs and places that you wouldn't even... And film shoots. Yeah, and, and film shoots. Ugh. 
But to get back to the question about how, why and how I got into BFI, right? At that young age, if it wasn't for my mom who passed away in 2018, God rest her soul. I'm so sorry to hear. Of course. But if it wasn't for her being resourceful and getting me into the industry, I would have never known anything about being a filmmaker, director, actor, anything like that. Because I lived in South Central LA, which is the hood. You don't see anything like that when you're in those kind of neighborhoods. You don't really see, you'll, you can watch TV, but you'll never see a pathway to that. So get it, coming to New York, knowing where I had been, knowing the experiences that I had already had at such a young age when it came to filmmaking, I felt like, number one, I wanted to work and be a filmmaker for just for a living. So I decided to start a company, that, which is the Bronx Film Initiative, that actually would allow me to do that, right? And number two, giving back and giving students like me that grow up in historically marginalized neighborhoods, giving them an idea or exposure to the film and television industry in a way that's not just giving them a camera or giving them a challenge of shooting something on their phone, but really bringing in a professional film crew to make their ideas come to life. I wanted young people that were in my predicament or similar unfortunate circumstances to be able to experience movie magic. And that's what prompted me. So like being a filmmaker, but also wanting to make a way, but also wanting to be a filmmaker for a living. Because you can't just do that. You right. know what I mean? Yeah, that so it's like a twofold story. Definitely. That's amazing. And did you grow up loving movies? It's, it sounded like you did. Aside from just being enamored from the process of making them, were you going to the movies quite a bit, watching movies at home? Or I was not watching a lot of movies. I wanted. I was writing a lot, though. I was telling stories. And I remember just always running away from writing. Like, even in the third grade, this teacher, Miss Montgomery, she would always make us write like stories. And I would be so mad because I would say, I don't know how to stop writing. You want me to write five paragraphs? And I end up handing in five pages because my stories would just be so elaborate. And I just would get frustrated because I'm like, how do I stop writing? And I didn't know that I was a storyteller. It didn't occur to me that I was being a writer. So that was my experience when I was a kid. That's pretty cool. How did how was it that your mom got you into <laughs> on the set of a McDonald's commercial? Like, how, what was that so, exactly like? Great question. So I was auditioning. You went through the process to get headshots, and she's just putting me on all these places. Any opportunity she would find, whether it was an audition, she found me a manager, and I auditioned for the manager. Immediately, they were like, "Yes, we want you." Even like some of the biggest agencies in LA, I was like on track to actually join them. But it was an audition. After getting a manager, they would just send me out for auditions. And that was my actual, that was my first audition, like professional audition ever. And you landed it. I did. That's incredible. Yeah. And. Because that yeah. is so rare. Yeah. I was just a good actress. <laughs> <laughs> I was a really good actress. I've always been a performer in some way, shape, or form. That's how I know that I was born for, to work in this industry. But yeah, I auditioned for it. That's wonderful. It. Yeah. <laughs> so flashing forward a little bit. Had I saw on your website that you wrote a music video for Meek Mill. Is that yes, right? Yes, it is. Tell correct. me a little bit about that. <laughs> In 2017, I was trying, this is right before I started, the around the time when I started Bronx Film Initiative. When I graduated from college, I was working at a corporate job, but moonlighting as a writer and like trying to write treatments for videos and submitting them on behalf of directors, almost like a ghostwriter, right? 
I met this incredible group of creatives, a director named Spike Jordan, and he would just send me songs like, okay, let's come up with a story idea because we want to tell a story more than just do a music video. And as a storyteller and a writer, he gave me the chance to write stories. So it took me about nine to write. (laughs) And... It took you about nine, nine what? Nine different... Nine different scenarios. scenarios to yeah. like submit for stories to be picked up to, gotcha. to make short films. Yeah. And actually, right before my, my the company I was working for closed, the next week I had submitted probably like the ninth or tenth one, and that one was for a video for Meek Mill and Tory Lanez called Liddy. So that was the first short film music video that I wrote. Nice. And then we did another one for Meek Mill's entire album in 2017, the Wins and Losses album. So there's a short film. You can watch it on YouTube that I co-wrote also. And then there's another one for Future. Feds did a sweep, another short film. You can watch that also. But these are stories that I wrote (laughs) and co-wrote. Amazing. Yeah. Spike Jordan. That sounds like the name of the director. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He's an incredible creative, but he always wanted to merge. He was in the music video world, but he always wanted to like transition over into narrative and real storytelling. So we would join forces to make these narrative stories, but still embed music around them. And just like a beautiful narrative, but musical piece. It was incredible. We did some great work together. Now, were you on set during production of these? Yes, I was. So I was also helping produce and bring the filmmaking side to the music video world. And were you involved in any kind of, so you're helping produce, helping yeah. with the logistics, with the it sounds like. Yeah. yeah. Were you involved in any creative decisions? Yeah. While you well, were on the set? stories and the actors when it came to acting, because there's dialogue that's affiliated. So like they would focus more on like the music video aspect of it, the performers, the artists, but then for the actors, which were actual actors and not musicians, we would, I would work with them for different scenes and just making sure that came across as real narrative work versus just thrown together for a music video. That's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it seems like it was well-received, right? Yeah. They turned out pretty Beautiful. well. I saw millions and millions yeah. of views. Yeah. yeah. People love them. They're like, you need to make a show out of this. You need to make a show out of it. Well, that's really encouraging. Yeah. I know. yeah. <laughs> so they love it. Again, here are my storytelling abilities just still shining through. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I also understand that you made a short film, which I had a chance to watch AJ story. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. Let good me job. You. Really good job. Thank you. Yeah. So that is Basically, when I founded the Bronx Film Initiative in 2017, the goal was to take students through the process of making a film from script to screen. So with AJ's story, we took students from all over the Bronx, New York, or just different places in New York, and we got them together and we said, okay, what do you want to make a movie about, literally? And we took them through a six-month process of creating this story. We took them through the process of screenwriting, casting, Choosing locations, like literally every single thing, crewing up, finding their DP, shot listing, just everything. These high school students had never been through before, but they were a part of, they created AJ's story. And I directed it along with Leon, who is a black American actor. He's also on the board of directors for the Bronx Film Initiative, but he also lended us his resources, his production company, Pulse Music. We also had The Mill, who is an extremely credible post-production house that specializes in visual effects and color. They did a $40,000 color job on AJ's story for the Bronx Film Initiative. Awesome. Yes. And we had a premiere at the AMC movie theaters at Lincoln Square. It was 
incredible. So we had the students, their friends and family. They all came out to, to see, see it on the big screen. To see it on the big screen. That is really exciting. Yeah, it was yeah. exciting. That's how why I started the Bronx Film Initiative because being a filmmaker, it is one of the most challenging yet rewarding things you could ever do in life. Well said. <laughs> I know like, from experience. Yes. Like, <laughs> even if you just make one, you will not be the same once you go through that process. It puts, it tests your limits. It challenges your creativity and just your ability to problem solve it, your tenacity and just not giving up because it does get hard and you do hit roadblocks and it's hard. It's so hard. <laughs> I feel like that. I feel, I always say it's like climbing Mount Everest every single time. Yes. And then there's times where, you're like waking up at 5.30 in the morning. You're like, why am I doing this to myself? Yes. <laughs> Every single time. I'm like, I must be crazy to agree to kill myself. <laughs> to just, yeah. I've but had that we're made feeling. for it. Yeah. But yeah, I know what you mean, especially when you're sitting down and watching the finished piece on the big screen with an audience. To me, that is the holy grail of what why we do this especially when people are connecting to it and that's it's really something special that it's hard to especially when you have a message and like even with the filmmaking process so the bronx film initiative is a vendor for the department of education in new york meaning we can work in any school in new york city depending on what type of programming that they want from us and we've been able to tie filmmaking into social emotional learning which is basically a new concept a newer concept that's been in place in the school system because the pandemic, it broke down a lot of structure in the school system. A lot of students regressed during the pandemic. A lot of them became hermits because they were inside all the time. A lot of students aren't able to have those basic communication skills, writing skills, expressing themselves. So what the Bronx Film Initiative does, taking students through that process, it reverses a lot of that damage that the pandemic did just mentally, creatively, and that's why it's been so successful because teachers, faculty, students, they see a change in the students once they go through this process. And a lot of schools are just like, we need the Bronx, we need to do this. We need our students to, to experience this because I've never seen my students smile. He knows, I've never even heard this student talk. I can't believe that he's smiling and engaging like this. I've never, I've never seen this student be happy before. And I've, they're in this moment creating and brainstorming and they're happy. Like, how are you doing this? And it's filmmaking. This is that is totally remarkable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I guess, tell me a little bit about what was the pre, you mentioned a little bit about the pre-production process and working with the student, mm -hmm. but tell me about the casting process. It was a very interesting casting process, but it was just like we would do it in our field. So we had the script and I created a curriculum around filmmaking so that things can happen on a schedule but things also had to happen at the same time so we had our breakdown of the story we were still we had a, we broke off a writer's group of students along with myself and we started writing but we had other students who already knew who the characters were going to be so we started casting as well aside from the lead character i really liked the, the actress that played the foster mom oh yes i thought she was fantastic and also the guy that played the drug dealer, the one that wanted 15%. Yeah. I thought he was really strong. Yeah, and that's actually well. Loaded Lux. He's a famous battle rapper. Oh, really? Yeah. I thought he was really good, yeah. He, he was, and we did, we shot that scene in three takes. Wow. Three takes. Yeah. Yeah, just three. Yeah, he was really in the moment. He was, yeah. and but we had rehearsals. Amazing. So, like, that's we, 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 
Exactly. So to make a good a product, make a great film, you have to take certain steps, which is what I've learned from all my experience in the industry. It's not a given, though, that there's rehearsals on right. an indie film. No, yeah. there's not, which there has to be. To me, yeah. rehearsals are mandatory for any project that I do. Any, there, You have to. Yeah. Because you waste so much time figuring it out on set if you wait. You know what I mean? If you wait yeah. to get into it. I've done moment. it both ways. I've done it both ways. It's For me, it's not necessarily a mandatory, but I will build in time to do a lot of takes. Okay. Then, yeah. Then that's the... And that's... It's like we're rehearsing it as we're yeah. so getting if you have, it. If you have time to do, that's great. I knew we didn't have time because we had three production days. Yeah. We uh, have to... Yeah. It has to be right when we get on set. <laughs> three production days for a 30-minute short film is remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it crazy? That's so crazy. I'm doing like <laughs> 10 days right now in a 15-minute film. Yes, <laughs> but that's where my first AD hat comes in, Yeah, <laughs> which is a whole other lane. But yeah, we did it. And yeah, we'll talk some more about that as well. But yeah, the casting was easy. We went through backstage. We had them and the students loved this process because people were sending in their sides and their self tapes. And most of the actors, a lot of them were chosen from self tapes. I thought the girl that played Bria was really good, too. Oh, that's my daughter. Oh, that's your daughter? Yeah. <laughs> she's a cute kid. Yeah, yeah that's she's, my daughter. She was awesome. Yeah, she's a great actress. Yeah, actually. yeah. No, go, go figure. She actually wants to be an actress. Yeah, she was really good. Yeah. That's pretty no, cool. She auditioned. We had yeah. everybody auditioned. <laughs> yeah. And they were like, yeah, that's Olivia. She was great. I'm yeah. Like, but uh, yeah, the audition process was so fun. They loved it. Just the fact that they had people... Imagine you're in high school and you have people like asking, can I be a part of this? Can I be a part of your film? And they're reading for you. And they're like, imagine how much power you feel as a young person to say, wow, I can oversee something. I can make decisions. My, my choice and my voice matters. That builds confidence. Yeah. In young creatives. That's it's, pretty cool. Yeah. So it's super holistic. Everything we do, I tie it back into just like real life and transferable skills, not just filmmaking. Now, as, as far as the story for audiences that are not familiar with the story, I guess, give us a little bit of a rundown about okay. what it's about. Okay, AJ's story is about a group of foster kids that try by any means necessary to stick together after the New York City s system tries to split them up. So they've been in foster care for many years and then tragedy happens and now they're being forced to split up. But the students, the kids, because they've four students, they all come from different walks of life, they've been in the same foster house for many years. So they don't want to split up. They're the only siblings that they know. And because they're technically still minors under the New York state law, they have to be split up after this event happens. And they figure out a way to try to get money to be able to, bri to provide for themselves. So that's the basis of the film. Nice. <laughs> and it touches on the New York City foster care system and real life stories of students that have those experiences and are able to speak to, you know, being a foster kid and not knowing who your parents are and living with strangers. Yeah, and that's it's an important story to tell because there's a, I don't know the exact numbers, but I know that there's a large amount. Yes, hundreds of thousands. Wow. Yeah, of yeah. foster kids in New York City. Some That's an extremely high number. Yeah, some of yeah. them live in shelters. Some of them live, if you're lucky, you can find a good family or a good house that has room for multiple so you can have some stability. But if not, some of them have been in like 30 foster homes by the time that they're in high school. Wow. Because they're just being moved around and moved around. Maybe it might not be a good fit. Maybe you don't get along with the person's kids or whatever it is. You can just be moved around like that. Just yeah, like that. I thought you captured that really well in terms of them mentioning how many foster kids and then even in the introduction of their characters giving that little exposition 
oh, on. Yeah. yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. Thank you. What was one of the biggest challenges that you faced when making this film? This is one of the one of the most devastating challenges. We were doing like ADR and voiceover stuff at the once production was done, and we were trying to get in contact with the mom character who played Miss S. And we couldn't get in contact with her for a long time. And we found out that she had passed away. Oh, man. That's and wow. we had to come up with a different way to, which is how that came about with where we introduced the characters and the writing on screen. Uh, we gotcha. had to figure out a new way to do that because she was supposed to have this voiceover. And yeah, but that's filmmaking. That's filmmaking <laughs> for sure. Problem solving and figuring out. It's constant else. problem solving. I'm always talking about that. Filmmaking is problem solving. Yeah. It is. Yeah. So that was a huge challenge. Another one was money. <laughs> sure. That's always because my There's goal, never enough, is never it? Never enough. <laughs> my goal was no matter what, I have to give these kids the experience of movie magic. I have to bring in the lights, the cameras, the experienced DPs. Like I need people to show them what it's supposed to look like, which is why I put a lot of emphasis on the production value of AJ's story because it's all about immersing the students in this world of, oh my God, this is all for me. All these people are here, all this crew, they're all here to make something that I made up come to life. I needed them to see the lights, the cameras. Even at the premiere, we had uh, about 10 photographers doing paparazzi on a red carpet because we wanted them to feel like this is your moment. This is something that you were you spent months on. You saw it through from beginning to end. You made a movie. That's why the program yeah. is called Let's Make a Movie. But even though this is a short film, but you, sure. still, you made a movie. Yeah. You did it, and you need to be celebrated for that. And you're you'll never be the same after this experience did you know that it was going to be a 30 minute running time when you first started making the film no when we started writing it because everybody had so many ideas yeah and with my experience as a storyteller it was my job to make the stories all make sense and make it a make it a film again these kids don't have filmmaking experience so when they come up with ideas it's, oh let's do this the sky's the limit. The, sky's yeah. the limit which is what i wanted them to feel which is why when they said he the pharmacy scene they chose that as you know the event that happened there i'm just like you're okay, like how, we, how on, are we gonna guys. get a pharmacy <laughs> <laughs> i said hold on wait and i tried to steer them in another direction and they were like we want a pharmacy and i was just like okay and i went on foot for about two weeks on s to so many different pharmacies to try to pitch the idea of having kids come in to shoot. Everybody said no. And then I found this. I was on my way to one pharmacy, and I saw another this pharmacy, Frederick Douglass Pharmacy in Harlem. And I was like, let me just go in there and see. And the owner was like, oh, this is great. Yes. How can we support? And they gave us the location. Amazing. For free. And I was just like, thank God. Yeah, but that is... <laughs> I wanted them to feel like whatever you want to make up, we're going to make it happen. So I was grateful that I was able to find somebody to say yes. But yeah, the pharmacy location is even on a regular film set. Like it's very hard to get. Trust me. I know. <laughs> Sometimes I write with a lot of locations and that's why I have a lot of shooting days on my projects. It's hard to do a company move yes. on the same day. As yep. So yeah, it gets tricky. That's where you get a good AD. <laughs> True, absolutely. It's always important to have a good AD. Yeah. So, yeah, that's pretty cool. Have you, and where, in, in terms of, ha have you submitted the film into festivals at this point? Yeah, so we're starting to enter into festival. We just got accepted into the Harlem International Film Festival. Congratulations. So, it's not announced yet, but I just found out yesterday. <laughs> I guess now it is announced. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we expect to get into many more. We I, Sure. 
we did a great job with the film. A lot of amazing people, amazing artists and creatives and filmmakers came together to make this film happen for the young people. And I think that is to be celebrated. And I also think people will be inspired by the story. It's something that I've never seen before. So yeah, hopefully there's going to be a lot more film festivals after this one. For sure. Cool. So wh I guess in terms of, so you're, I know you're also ADing on other people's yes. productions. And I don't know if you want to talk about that at all. Of Has course. The, yeah. How did that come about? How did you first start ADing? In order to be a good director, I always had in mind that I need to learn how to do everything. I need to understand how everything works, which works hand in hand, because with BFI, I understand the entire process of production because of all my experience. Um, so with ADing, that was just another step in the ladder. So at, at first I learned to edit. I went to writing and editing came first. What do you edit on? Premiere Pro. Good. Yeah. Good. <laughs> I do as well. Okay. I'm actually an early adopter of Premiere Pro. Really? Yeah, like what, in, back in 2007, I started using Premiere Pro, and I had a friend of mine who was in the industry, and he, I guess he got, an, at that time, an entry-level job working at a, a major network, and he was like, Zeph, no professional editors use Adobe Premiere Pro. I'm like, all right, I like it. And then a couple, I think it was like, a few years after that, Final mm -hmm. Cut X came out, and then everybody jumped ship from Final Cut into a premiere. Yeah. And I felt pretty vindicated. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that, too, because I actually learned first how to use Final Cut, and then I went to premiere because I felt like there were limitations. As you start learning how to edit, you start realizing, okay, I need to learn how to do this, or why is this not simpler? Because you just edit your Yeah, so, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. But so editing, writing... Long story short, I started ADing, and I actually found I was really good at it just because I understood the editing process and just, you know, being a writer, producer, and all these different things. I'm just like, okay, I understand how this works. Plus, I worked with a really bad AD before. Yeah. And I was just like, okay. What made them a bad AD? They were disorganized or they were not necessarily disorganized, unprofessional? but they didn't know filmmaking well enough to be able to articulate times of things like you know realistic time frames so on the scheduling they weren't yeah they weren't realistic they weren't efficient because you didn't you don't you don't understand what it takes okay you might have a tracking shot but keep taking account that you have to build the track so you might right. not another person might not know that you have to take an account to build the track that might take about 45 minutes but if you're just like not knowledgeable you won't know that to, to accommodate that in the schedule so a bunch of those little things will create a disaster for a schedule i had a situation just last saturday where we had a we rented a dana dolly from a rental house and then thankfully the dp checked out the dolly because we were doing this overhead specialized rig shot and he was like you know what they didn't give us the thing that they said they were going to give they said they were going to give us six foot risers for this they gave us four and a half foot risers so just that 18 inches was going to make the difference between our last shot in the movie which was a crucial shot and then Thank God he checked that because it gave me the chance to call up the rental house. They were super cool about it in terms of offering to deliver that part right away. But if we had just checked that right before setting up that scene, that wouldn't have that would have happened at midnight and it would have been way too late yep. and we would have been freaking toast. Yeah, it's all knowledge, and just yeah. because I have so much hands-on experience, I know. I know so much when it comes to everybody's department, not just being a director or actor, but I've been an actress before. Yeah. Hair and makeup, wardrobe. I have so much knowledge. So I found I, I was a good, I'm a good AD. So I started working as an AD and honestly, 
I've just been getting hired by word of mouth. I've worked on. That's usually how best, it goes. Yeah, yeah, with the best directors. I've worked with huge brands, Walmart, Audible, McDonald's. I've traveled a lot. I worked on a Super Bowl commercial. Like I've done a lot as an AD just because word of mouth. <laughs> uh, by the way, I'm an Audible junkie. By the way, I love Audibles. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, they were great. I did something with Michael Strahan and then another podcast with another. Oh, yeah. How was Michael Strahan? Was tall, he nice? Super tall, super nice, very yeah. friendly, bubbly, Yeah. and quick. He got in and got out. We were on set for six hours. He was on set for about 30 minutes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Highly efficient. <laughs> Highly efficient. And he had to go do some news or something. But yes, as an AD, it's another career path in this industry. Don't sleep on being an AD. You can make a lot of money, you can be very successful. However, like I, we spoke about before, I am on the DGA qualifications list as a first AD, but I have not joined the DGA as a first AD because I'm a director and I'm a freelance director. And you're not allowed to work as a director if you are in the DGA as an AD. Okay. So th does that mean that, I guess let's elaborate on this. Does that mean that you're not alert, allowed to direct on non-union things then? Or like, how does that work? So you can't work as a director in any capacity unless you have written permission from the DGA, if you are in the DGA in, as a first gotcha. AD. Now, if you get hired by a union company to work as a director, which is very rare to just come, because those opportunities come, there's there's no right. standard way to right. do that. But then that can override your first AD status. But anything other than that, you cannot, you're not allowed to. Yeah. So I felt like... I, I didn't want to spend all that money joining as a first AD, knowing that my passion is being a director. What if it's your own project that you're developing? Let's say like you're developing an indie film and you're a member of the DGA. <laughs> then how does that work? You then? just have to get permission. You just They just have to grant you permission to yes, do it. Yeah. So there's yeah. paperwork and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. But I didn't think it was worth paying the money to do that because I work a lot as a non-union AD. I'm not a must join yet. I think I have like maybe 10 more days to be a must join to work on set as a first AD on a union project. But yeah, I don't see myself paying to be a first AD in the DGA when I know that I will be a director in the DGA eventually. I see what you're saying. That makes sense. Yeah. What's some of the best filmmaking advice that, that you've received over the years or that you've even come up with just from your own experience? I would say the best experience is by doing. If you want to so be a true. filmmaker, make something. It doesn't yeah. have to be good the first time. doesn't have to be perfect. You start somewhere and you just do it until you love your work. Yeah. Because I can't tell you how many things I've made that I'm like, oh, cringe. I don't even want to watch this that I've made. Same. But, you, <laughs> Same. You, then, but then you'll get to the point like, oh, wow, I did good here. Yeah. You'll get there. But yeah. you have to get through that cringy stage. But you have to execute. You got to see something through from beginning to end. Because the challenges that you learn along that journey, they always make you stronger for the next project. So you have to just be always working, always doing. Even if you have a day job, find a way to make something. You want to be a director? Direct something. Find something to direct. Write something that you want to direct. Make something that you want to see. That's my number one advice. Because everybody wants to make it in this industry, but you have to be really good. You have to be really good at your job. <laughs> you have to be beyond really good, yeah. I think, because I think it's Tony Robbins that said that life is unfair, that good, being good produces poor results. It's only until you're outstanding do you get outstanding results. Yes. And that's, that's something that when I first read that, 
that hit me like a ton of bricks. Cause he was like, are you, if you were good, would you get into the Olympics as a runner? If you're good? He's like, no. He's like, if you're very good, would you get into the Olympics? He's like, no. Excellent. No. He's only till you're outstanding. I'm Absolutely. like, damn, that is so true. Yeah. And I'm okay with that. This yeah. is why I trust my journey. Sometimes I feel like, oh my God, I do so much. I'm a writer. I can, I, I can do all these things. I've been hired and paid to do all these things. And I, I feel like I do them well. My personal goal is I want to direct episodic television series. So that's my personal journey. I know that everything that I'm doing right now, even in the process of being able to give back, which I think is, I'm, I'm so blessed to be able to do something I love that also helps other people because yeah. it's completely full circle. Like you have to give back. You have to put your energy out into the world. And I think that, one thing about the Bronx Film Initiative, not only do we help students, but we hire up-and-coming filmmakers to make films with the students because we offer different programming, whether it's a, we have one day to shoot a short film, whether we have five weeks or whatever it is. I have so many different programs that I'm always looking for, like, writers or other directors, like, partner with me. I want you to make something with these students because you're still getting access to the top-notch equipment you're still getting access to the best filmmakers and you can still be a part of something but you're getting practice and experience which you need to be good in this industry so it's like a win for everybody involved absolutely so what do you see as next on your journey i know you want to express interest in directing episodic television and i could yeah. certainly picture you getting there <laughs> hopefully yeah. sooner than later but what's next as part of your plans of directing? So next, I just so I just shot a short film. It's called Commissioned by Grief because I was inspired by just like losing my mom and understanding like how the Western civilization handles grief much differently than a lot of different cultures around the world. I feel like different cultures make space for grief. They welcome grief into the room. They invite you to sit with it. But in America, a lot of times... Grief is looked at as something that you just need to get over quickly. You'll get back to normal soon. You'll, we don't really, in Jewish culture, they sit shiva. In Chinese culture, there are certain practices that they have to give you space to mourn and when you lose somebody. But Albanians, I'm Alban. Albanians will, will wear black for a year. They won't dance at weddings for a year yeah. if it's people close to them. Exactly. Those and everybody shows up, even if it's. Somebody you just know, you show up to the wake or funeral. Yeah, and, you know. and in America, you're like, okay, you got the funeral, you got the repass. All right, let's try to get back to normal life as soon as possible. And it's just, that doesn't work. <laughs> That's so true. This is something I've definitely thought about. It's interesting because sometimes people don't even know what to say. Or there's in other cultures, it's more specific on just what you even say to somebody when they lost Absolutely. somebody. And then in America, sometimes it's you might have somebody just awkwardly glossing it over we don't even honor the dead like that in, a, in, a, in this western culture and i studied jewish culture with, with when it comes to grief like they'll cover the mirrors because it's not about your appearance it's about mourning your lost loved one when they sit shiva and they have family members just come by the family members that come by aren't even allowed to speak they just you wait until the bereaved says something and then you can speak because what do you say what's the right thing to say to somebody that has lost something it's you show your love and you show your support by just being there by maybe bringing food something for them to to eat but you, grief is respected and there's space made for it and I feel like a lot a part of my healing and why I struggled a lot to deal with the loss of my mom is because 
all I was trying to do was be strong and get over it and try to move on and keep myself busy and be strong for my daughter and be strong for my family and my siblings. But it's like, where's my space to stop and deal with this grief and miss this person? And I would find it came at the most awkwardest moments. I would be at the mall and I'll see, I'll smell her perfume and I'll break down crying. I'll be in traffic and somebody honks at me too hard and now tears are just flowing out my eyes or whatever it is. But that's because I never had a period or any designated time to like really mourn. And I started just really thinking about that. So this short film is a reflection of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, it's a super simple short film, but it's, and I think. And so you already shot that? Yeah, I did. Nice. And um, you're editing that now? I'm, there's a voiceover component. Uh, what, how, what's the running time you think that's going to be? Probably like 10 to, 10 to 15 minutes. Was it like a 10 to 15 page script? No, I didn't write a script for it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Did you yeah. just write like a treatment or an outline? Um, or I didn't write anything for it. I just had an idea. It literally came to me during this time where I was really, it was I was depressed and I was yeah. missing my mom so bad. And I just didn't understand why after it's been five years, why do I feel like it just happened? Then I started thinking about grief and then I just started trying to understand what was happening yeah. to me. Yeah. And which is the beauty of being a filmmaker because now I get to put all of that in a film to share with the world so that people can say, man, I feel that I've lost somebody and I feel that maybe I should next time I see somebody that lost someone, I'll give them extra care, extra comfort, or that's what filmmaking is for to spread these ideas. And I'm a creative, I'm a vessel. I'm a, everything that I take in is for me to express creatively because I am a creative person. God made me that way. So doing things like this film commissioned by grief or just giving back with BFI, I'm a filmmaker. I have to create, I have to absorb this world and it's my responsibility and my duty to regurgitate the things that I receive in a beautiful way. I love that. Very well <laughs> said. And I feel the same way, honestly. Yeah. It's funny because there's a surprising amount of, fil- I was talking about this with my friend Daniel. There's a surprising amount of filmmakers that, we're going to become priests, but instead they became filmmakers. Martin Scorsese was one of them. Wow. He was, I don't know if you knew that. I didn't know that. Yeah, he was in a seminary. He went to missionaries and things like that. He was really serious about becoming a priest when he was a young person. Wow. A young I would have never known. Yeah, Danny Boyle that made Train Spotting. Same thing. 28 days later, Danny Boyle. He's incredible. Right. I didn't know that. I could be wrong about this, but I'm almost positive that I read it. Akira Kurosawa also was going to become a priest. A priest? Yeah, but he became a filmmaker. That's incredible. It makes sense to me, though. Yeah. I think we're really powerful because we can interpret things that people wouldn't even understand how to put into words. Yeah. And we can Keep this that. closer. Sorry. <laughs> we can regurgitate things that we receive from what's around us and spit it back out in a beautiful way. Yes. It's our talent. It's our superpower. <laughs> I always say that, too. I always feel like if I'm not being creative, I feel like I'm being destructive yeah even if it's not literally it just my my state of mind feels like that yeah so i understand that so i think it's important and Um, it keeps me going and i know a lot of filmmakers you get it's easy to get discouraged but if you think about it as a duty and as an obligation that not many people have lean on that whenever you feel discouraged because whatever you're experiencing you can translate it and put it out into the world. Yes, you can. You know? I thought about that too, for sure. It's <laughs> every person that you meet, every situation you encounter, it's one of the rare occupations where you could use it. Everything. As, yeah, everything. Use it. You know? yeah. And also, 
you asked me like, what are some tips, right? Yeah. Read and study this craft because yes, you have natural abilities and skills, but there's so much in text and in books that you can learn from other filmmakers and just getting insight from different creatives always be studying i'm reading a book writing the dramatic series right now and it is so insightful and it's sometimes hearing you know somebody, who's the author of the book sure it's important and it's a it's an important book and i think anybody that is a storyteller should read this book especially if you want to work in the industry it is by pamela douglas Okay. So writing the TV drama series by Pamela Douglas. Incredible. It's, I'm doing Audible because I'm always driving. Yeah, I'm it Audible. It is incredible. Yeah. It is incredible. It'll give you so much insight into how the industry works. It'll tell you, you know, it talks about money. It talks about pay. It talks about what you should expect. It talks about the steps to becoming a writer. Just storytelling, how to use your, what's happening around you. How to get along in writer's room and writing in groups. How rewrites work. It gives so much insight in this super long book read it if you're a writer or if you're just a storyteller or a director read all right i'm convinced (laughs) i'm gonna use my next credit on that book yeah i'm currently listening to the biography of alfred hitchcock okay how's that going really interesting super interesting yeah yeah Yeah. see that yeah i like i'm a very technical person because i'm super like i'm super creative and i'm super just i'm a sponge and i just I'm a, I'm like the true definition of an artist. Like I'm everything and nothing. And I just, I have highs and lows and ebbs and flows, but I'm just like, yeah. I'm always in that creative mind. That's so funny that you say that. I like that. I admire people that think that way. I don't, I, I don't know. I've always been reluctant to, to call myself an artist for some reason. I think it's because of the way I grew up. Really? Yeah. No, I'm really an artist. Yeah. No, you are. I, and I, I see it. I just... <laughs> I don't know. I never call myself an artist, though, for some <sighs> you reason. You should embrace it because there's there aren't a lot of people that are, are true artists. Think yeah. about Prince. Think about a Kanye West. Yeah, Think about sure. these artists that are just so unconventional, but they stand so strong on what they believe in, their morals, their values. You have to be that radical when you're an artist to really make change in this world. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it is that I don't really call myself an artist. I think it's because... Maybe it's because of, uh, I don't know, growing up in the Bronx or like blue collar background, being an Albanian. Like Albanian, there's a lot of Albanian artists that they're like, I'm an artist. And the way it sounds when you say it in Albanian, it, sa- it sounds so arrogant. You say it in a way that's yeah. so earnest and so cool. <laughs> you seem like such job. a genuine person and it doesn't come across that way. But okay. there's so many people that I know that I've heard that's I'm an artist. And it's it makes it sound like they're on this level that c- common people are not. And I just... I think I've always been like reluctant to say that for some reason. I'm like, that's for other people to say. That's not for me to say, you know, being an artist is being a servant. Like we are the trend, like we are the scribes of this world. Just like back in the Bible days, they had people to write the Bibles. They had people to write the history books. That is us. You know, it's 2023. So it looks a little different, but it's our job. It's an honor. It's a responsibility to, share our stories just the storytellers from africa they had to tell the parables that's us yeah and if it's in your blood if it's in you if you want to be a creator and you make movies that's because you have that thing i'm sorry (laughs) but you are an artist (laughs) it's in you listen like i said it's okay for you to call me that i just won't call myself that okay so Um, what do you call yourself 
I do call myself a filmmaker and I approach it from I approach it from a pretty I like from what you were saying before, I do look at it like it's a lifetime of learning and a lifetime of mastery. Like as soon as you think that you know everything, then you probably have to start all over again because I think it's, I think people that are at the top of their craft are always pushing themselves to get to this deeper level of the craft. And that's how I look at it. I agree. I also think that being an artist means finding your voice. Like a painter needs to find their stroke and their palette. I think you have to find your voice. So find that way to express, like how I talked about the grief short film, like that's my voice. That's my experience. That's me capturing a moment in time and putting it on screen. Like you have to find your voice. I don't think it's about just some, I used to think that it was like, okay, I have to be like this person. If I can be like Ava DuVernay or Shonda Rhimes or, but I have to use my skill and find Christina Richardson. That's my signature, but I have to find that by doing and by being a filmmaker and making things, you know? Yeah. So that's something that I learned. Find your voice. You don't, you're not going to be like any other filmmaker. You're not going to have the same person's journey. Focus on yours because it's unique and it can't be, du- can't be duplicated or recreated by anyone but you. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So now we're going to move on to the second portion of the podcast okay. where I ask each guest to share two of their favorite movie scenes from any two films of all time. And Christina <laughs> shared a couple of really strong scenes. Yeah. One is from The Revenant, which we'll get to secondly. And the f- first one is from Inglorious Bastards yeah. by Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. And uh, it's the opening sequence of Inglorious Bastards. There may be spoilers in this discussion. <laughs> so if you've never seen Inglorious Bastards or The Revenant, I highly recommend watching both. And Let's talk about Inglorious Bastards. I saw that back in the movie theater in 2009. Wow. And it was such a cool experience watching that film on the big screen. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of that that opening scene. It's so strong. It's so strong and... Okay. So I guess give some context. If somebody hasn't seen it or they haven't seen it in a long time, let's give the audience a little context of what it's about. What is the scene? Okay. So you have a dad who is in the field working. In Nazi-occupied France, and he is a Frenchman. Yes, he's a Frenchman in Nazi-occupied France. He's, he, his daughter spots a group of, what would you call them? Um, Soldiers, Nazis. Yeah, Nazis, essentially. Nazis. Yeah, like uh, one, of the, one of is a high-ranking SS member, which we don't know until they arrive, but yeah, they are uh, German Nazi soldiers arriving on motorcycles, essentially. Right. Yeah. So the daughter alerts the dad. The Nazis are coming, basically. He's like, give me some water. He goes in the house, and now he has to invite this Nazi into his house. The whole time, can I say that part? I'm going to just, spoiler alert. Yeah, yeah. So the whole time, he's hiding Jews underneath his house. And... let's First, let's backtrack. <laughs> okay. Because that is what's happening. But I remember, did you see this in the theater when it no, came I out? I didn't. That scene... When like you almost he heard like reactions from the audience like when it when because there's a buildup you have this guy yes. he's chopping wood in this little like he has a farm and there's this little wood house and just you could see just from when that motorcade is coming with those German Nazi soldiers his whole world 
is just interrupted. It's yeah. it's definitely an oh shit moment. But you don't quite know why yet. You don't it's know why like, yet, for sure. It's an amazing buildup. Yes, and tension, that scene, tension, the tension. Christoph Waltz plays, and he's such an incredible actor. I was really thinking about this <laughs> deeply today when I revisited the scene in preparation for this discussion because I'm like, I don't think there's a single other human yeah. being in the world that could have played that part no. better than him. No. <laughs> and that, so for me, of course, we all know Quentin Tarantino and his ability to write amazing dialogue amazing amazing yeah. dialogue so amazing and when you're writing a dialogue in the script i like to say dialogue is an accessory it's not mandatory because filmmaking is visual right yes so, yeah yeah that's know, true that's so a good you want to use a dialogue when you absolutely must and this scene it revolves around the dialogue but there was so much tension that like you're just in this conversation like just waiting for the ball to drop and sitting at the edge of your seat <laughs> so it starts off and hans landa is the name of Christoph Waltz's character, who is the high-ranking SS member, and he, I guess, he's tasked by the Nazis to find Jewish people in different territories. In this case, it's Nazi-occupied France. And he's trying to figure out if this Frenchman who lives with his daughters, it's not clear, like, the wife isn't around. They don't even mention that maybe his, his wife passed away or whatever. I like that there's not even exposition in that yeah. part. But he's there with his three daughters and at first, Christoph Waltz's character comes in and asks them for a glass of milk. He offers him a glass of wine, and he says, no, I've heard that this is a dairy farm. He's like, I would a glass of milk. And just even something as simple, Tarantino is so brilliant at taking those simple sort of things and then making it intriguing cinematically and then also embedding tension yes. into these things. There's something about him, this Nazi, drinking a glass of milk that is both interesting to watch and also menacing yes. at the same time. Interesting to watch. And that's one thing about Quentin Tarantino. Like he, he knows how to capture your eyes and your mind <laughs> on the screen. You literally are just, you're sitting. I think it's a good lesson in tension building because so with storytelling, important. you have to create tension. You have to create high stakes. Like you have to take the viewer on a journey when it comes to storytelling. And that scene right there, when it comes to tension and buildup and, not being obvious, but leaving enough mystery to just keep the viewer like, you're almost like not breathing when you're watching it. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. In yeah. fact, so much to the point where I threw it on and I was like, I'm just going to watch a minute of it. I was just queuing it up. I was like, I'm just going to watch a minute of this and get to this later on because I was busy at that moment. And then I couldn't not yeah. watch the whole 20 minute sequence. You're just hooked. <laughs> and I this is something I often talk about that, I think cinema, when it's effective, it's like hypnosis yeah. because it, it pulls the audience into a trance-like state where they're, that's why people say, like, I was sucked into the movie. And certainly Tarantino is extremely effective at that. Hitchcock was extremely effective at that. All, all really the masters of filmmaking are so good at that. And he's a writer-director, which sometimes working is, is very challenging. Because it's very you challenging. Can, you can get sucked into that world and... You can be a little biased, I feel like, as a writer-director with your story because you're so close to it. You're writing it and you're directing it. And I feel like he does a great job with pack, packing up the story and packaging it up and finishing it off because he just, these long, they're long sometimes, and, but he always finds like his, he always finds his way in his storytelling. It's the Quentin Tarantino way. I don't know how he does it. It can't be re replicated, but he always executes. He does, <laughs> yeah. I think... 
I know. I was thinking the same exact thing. Number one, for sure, like you said, it's his writing. His writing is so incredibly strong. And in terms of even just the most minute things, it's the level of details. When the Frenchman says, but somebody else has come to inspect the house before, surely I'm not harboring anybody. And then Christoph Waltz's character says, Oh, yes, but now I'm responsible for that when it's it's like just a managerial technicality. Uh-huh. And that's the thing. Surely it must be nothing, but we must examine these things. To It's just like the ebb and flow of kind of the tension in the scene and the minutia of... And then when just even how it starts off in French and Christoph Waltz and the other character, the owner of the house, he's speaking in French. And then Hans Landa says, I've heard that you speak English. Do you mind, do I have your permission to switch the conversation to English because we've exhausted my French abilities? And just something like that is Tarantino is so good at that level of detail. Personification and making a a person versus just an actor in a film. It's This is a real man who really is the head of a Nazi. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. He brings that realism to his characters just because of the nuance. Yes. And also the shots. Can we talk about the, that Please. drop-down shot? Yeah, that's incredible. Actually, the reveal. The reveal is it incredible. Like, and the, on the prairie, even the shot of him splashing the water on his face after he tells his daughter to get him a bucket of water. It's just you're submerged in it. You know what I mean? It's yeah. almost like ASMR. I don't know how he does I, it. That's a good comparison, actually, yeah. because, yeah, it's, it's very visceral. And so then there's a shot where it's revealed to the audience, and the camera literally goes from where they're sitting in this guy's kitchen at the table, drinking a glass of milk, and the owner of the house is smoking a pipe, to the camera literally goes down underneath the floorboards, just vertically downward, to reveal that there are people hiding inside. And then as the audience, I just remember, oh, shit, the tension is just palpable. I know, it really is. And that's where Hitchcock talked about is if you have a scene where there's two people having dinner and then there's a bomb underneath them, don't just let the bomb explode. Show the audience that there's a bomb. Yeah. And it's a real kind of example of that sort of thing. It's something might happen for sure. And it just raises the tension now that it was the audience. I just remember it was just like palpable. Yeah. And even if even in this the book that I'm reading, they talk about how it's just a series of secrets, right? You're letting the audience in on secrets and making them like you're holding on to that the entire time. And it doesn't have to be, storytelling doesn't have to be complicated, elaborate stories. It's just about that dance between like secrecy and knowing something and revealing thing and timing and rhythm and pacing. Like it's more of those things versus this elaborate story. And the more I study storytelling and screenwriting, I figure it's not elaborate stories. It's about, how you're telling the story. It's about... A hundred percent. I love what you're saying because that's something that echoes my own sentiment of it doesn't it it doesn't need to be complex. It just needs to be well executed. And if, in fact, I'm not even precious as a filmmaker about ideas. I'll, some people are like, I don't want to tell you my... Especially newer filmmakers, I find. Yeah. They're like, I don't want to tell you my idea because you're going to steal my idea. It's, I don't know. I, I don't... I'm not like that at all. I'll, yeah. Tell my ideas because even if you're going to take my idea, it's going to be so different than the way I do it. Yes. If you make eggplant parmesan from the same exact recipe as I make it, it's still going to taste different. Gonna it's going to say to taste so different. 
so I look at it like that. It's like chefing or something. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it is. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, I'm not worried about that either. I feel like we're I'm an abundance of ideas. Yeah. Yeah, and nobody will tell the story because nobody has my perspective. Nobody is me. So right. I'm, if I'm tapping into my truest, honest self, that can only be done by me. So my ideas can only be co- executed the Christina way. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I'm yeah. not afraid of that. So then as the scene progresses, man, it's so incredible that, hold on, there's some honking outside. Let me just shut the window for a second. So yeah, toward the end of the scene where Hans Landa is asking him, are you harboring any enemies of the state? And if you tell me the truth, I'll go easier on you. Mm-hmm. And it's, it really puts this guy in an impossible position because he's got his daughters there. They could easily, they will probably get killed right there and then yep. at that point because he knows that they're there. It's almost him saying, I know that they're down there, yeah. you know, and- when he says yes, it's it was even more difficult watching it the second time because <laughs> I know what was going to happen. Yeah. And then he invites. That was also really clever too, where he was like, "Since they don't understand English, and you're pretend, we're going to switch back to French and just go along with my masquerade." And then he's he starts speaking in French. He's oh, it's nothing to see here. Essentially, uh-huh. everything is fine. And then he's like, "Girls, come back in." And then when he's saying. For his daughters to come back in, it's really the Nazi soldier. And then when they start firing the shots Mm -hmm. in the floorboard, I just remember in the movie, it was just so, so intense and so sad and just such a crazy way to kick off that movie. I love it. Yeah. He's in Quentin Tarantino. He can be very disgusting. Sure. <laughs> and not, it, it can be in a beautiful way, but some of his choices are just like, wow, you really had to drive it home. Like the killing and the bloodshed. He can be intense. I used to love this movie called Grindhouse. Do you remember Grindhouse? Yeah, yeah. One of my favorite movies with the girls. Yeah. Ki- killing the killer. Yeah. Another one, but it, the bludgeoning, like the action. It's very visceral. Very visceral. The Hateful Eight was really intense. I love it. My One of my favorite, honestly, Quentin Tarantino movies is Django. I love Django. Yeah, I love it was so Django. good. Another I, one with Christoph Waltz being so good in it. You know why I love Django? Because I just felt so good seeing how the black people won in those scenes. Shot back, we fought back. I wanted to see that. I'm, I feel like after all we've endured and after seeing so many slave movies where we're getting beat and killed and kidnapped and all these things happen to us, I feel like Quentin Tarantino gave us like a slave revenge movie. And a lot of people didn't like the movie. Like, I heard a lot of mixed reviews, but I was like, yes, right on. <laughs> Kill those motherfuckers. <laughs> yeah, I think that was certainly his intention. Yeah, and I think whether somebody likes or hates the film or all of his films, somebody has to acknowledge the, the guy is a great filmmaker. Like, he's, he knows his craft and he knows how to make a great film. Whether, you know, it's somebody's cup of tea or not, mm-hmm. that's a different story. But it's the, the same thing with, like, music. Somebody could hate classical music but if they hear a certain arrangement that's just a masterpiece it would be difficult to say that that's just a bad song so you might not like it yeah. but you have to at least say that it was impressive for that yes, song to have you been felt made. something yeah that's what this is all about you did you feel that did you feel what i was making you <laughs> what i was trying to <laughs> right. say point accomplished okay so now moving on to the revenant yes. now question did you see this in the cinema yes i Yes, I did. I had a feeling oh that you did. Oh, my God. And I'll tell you why that I had a feeling that you did. I would have been surprised, actually, if the answer was no. Really? Okay. Yeah, oh. because people that really 
responded to this film, I noticed there's a strong correlation with people that actually saw it in the theater. It's a different movie it if is. you've seen this movie in the theater than if you watch it at home. I'm sorry, but it is. It is. And it really is. So, like, I'll know a lot of people that, because I love The Revenant as well, and that really pulled me in. Beautiful. It was beautiful. But I know a lot of people that saw it. If somebody didn't usually like it, I'll say, did you watch it at home or did you watch it in the theater? They're like, oh, well, I watched it at home. And I'm like, that's a different experience yeah. for that movie in yeah. particular. That The Revenant to me, I think what stood out to me was the choreography of all the scenes, especially like that opening scene with the war and that one that shot that they yeah. did. That all, I'm just like, I'm a huge fan of like choreography because I know what it takes to accomplish. Yeah. The, war scene, the blocking of the actors. The blocking and the timing and the special effects having to happen all in real time, camera movement. To be able to execute that in, on such a large scale to me is a, it's impressive. And I know it takes a lot. So I just, I loved that movie. And the scene that I chose. It's a famous one. It is famous when he hid inside or he got inside the horse's carcass. So give us a little context about what the film is about. For especially for audiences that don't know it. The Revenant is a film where Leonardo DiCaprio is, he's injured. Okay, it's a very long movie, but it is yeah, extremely long. But he's traveling with this pack of, they make pelts, right? Like they skin animals and they, that's right. They have pelts and that they get all these animals and carry the skin. They have to travel from different regions, but they are trying to escape and he was injured and he had to, find his way back home. And he was left for dead, basically, and he had to try find his way back through snowy mountains, through a war zone, through all these things happening. So it follows the journey of him just trying to get back home in the wilderness with, with multiple inju- injuries. And so there's a scene where DiCaprio actually is so cold that he's going to be freezing to death. And there's the scene that you chose. And yeah. it's he actually cuts open... A dead horse. A dead horse. Takes out all his organs. And it's a freshly yeah. dead horse. Where the organs, when he pulls him out, pulls the organs out, they're still steaming because they were just inside of the horse. He pulls out like the stomach, intestines, and I think like the liver, the heart. He cuts out all these things and he climbs inside of the horse's body to seek shelter and warmth. And he just sleeps there overnight. Oh, yeah, it's so intense and so visceral. First of all, I think just the idea, whoever made that up, is it based on a true story? I think it is based off a true story. I don't know yeah, if that part gotta, was you true. You gotta be sick to write something like that. Okay, I'm gonna imagine writing that. He's gonna get inside of the horse's dead body for warmth. That's crazy. And Leonardo DiCaprio actually did it. Yeah. That's filmmaking. That is filmmaking. That's the freedom that you get from filmmaking. Right and he won an Oscar yeah. for it. And well deserved, he honestly, because, did. yeah, he deserved that Oscar. Yeah, he did. Didn't he have to, like, lose weight for the film he had to completely like yeah change his life to to become that role which i get it was very intense so except for one scene the entire film was shot in natural light the direct the dp emmanuel lubeski used an re alexa 65 with fast lenses and a large depth of field and i I think they originally wanted to shoot it on film but they found that digital was just better under low light conditions of course Because there were, like, night scenes. They were on location, like, in the wilderness. Yeah. So there were, like, these night scenes that the cinematography was beautiful. They had so many beautiful wide shots. And according to Lubeski, apparently the wind was causing the fire to pulse in distracting ways. 
And there was only one scene where light bulbs were used to offset the unwanted effect of those campfire flames pulsating. So uh, apparently the Revenant was originally going to star Samuel L. Jackson when development began back in 2001. Really? Yeah. He was supposed to play the lead with Korean director Park Chan-wook attached to direct. And then the director, then the project fell into the hands of director John Hillcote and then Christian Bale was supposed to star in it. Christian Bale could have been great in it too. He could have. Yeah. And Yuritu didn't sign on until the summer of 2011. So it's ba- it's, it is based off a true story. DiCaprio's character, Hugh Glass, was a real-life frontiersman living in post-colonial America. And he was a fur trapper, a trader, an explorer who lived from 1780 to 1833. Historical accounts claim that Glass did actually survive a bear attack and was left for dead. He then trekked 200 miles to Fort Kiowa after being abandoned by members of an expedition. And it's also reported that DiCaprio eats raw bison liver on camera, among other unendurable things. And he was given the option of eating either a fake liver made of jelly or the real deal. And for the sake of just authenticity, DiCaprio... He ate a real liver. He ate a real liver. That's dedication. Is he a method actor? I don't know if he's a method actor, but that I know he's extremely dedicated. Yeah, that sounds <laughs> to me like, because I don't uh, see, that's the thing about acting. I respect actors so much. Same. Actors are everything. Like all the writing, all that's cool, editing, but if it's all about the actors. Listen, I'm with you. I think, and I've worked with actors that have physically even for a short film where there's no money involved i worked with one actor that he trained in a boxing gym for six weeks transforming his body and just his level of dedication was incredible and i remember one time the script was left behind and i just saw the notes and the backstory on each line of dialogue and one paragraph i'm like wow this is this is impressive and all of those things christina i'm sure you feel the same way but I always feel like those experiences when I've been around people that are like supporting me and they're like so dedicated, it just fuels my fire. So you know what? I like, I can never complain about how hard I have to work because there's so many people depending on this. Yeah. And I agree. And I think that when you find that, that sweet spot, that's why it's important in this business to find your tribe, especially as a filmmaker. Like I'm sure you have a set group of people that you usually work with on projects. Sure, absolutely, I do. And I have the same thing now, and I'm fortunate to have a team of creatives that are just as hungry as me. We don't have egos. It's about, like, how can we make the best product? It's not about who's better than this, or we all know our roles. We're all willing to chip in however ways we can, even if it's outside of our scope. But that type of dedication and having a team that goes just as hard as you do, that's how you win. If you want to go somewhere, you go alone. What is the saying? You go... If you want to go far, go alone. If you want to go far, this go together or something like that. Long story short. I, I know what you mean. You know what I'm talking about. I'm going to botch the saying if I say it, but yeah, I, I know but the sentiment. It, you need to find your tribe. If you want to go fast, go alone. Yes. If you want to go far, go with a team. I yes, think it is. Yes. I could yes. be wrong about that. It's, we're on the, in the same in the yeah. boat. But extremely important. Find your tribe. Find your people. Find the people that go hard for you because filmmaking is a collaborative sport. You yeah. have, to, especially as an independent filmmaker, we are not working with this, the high budgets, but if you can find your people, 
you can win. You can make something beautiful. And I think that's the thing. Like, I think in this industry, your work is your calling card. I'm not looking for like my next big break. I'm looking to make something amazing that I just want the world to see. And I don't think success comes from trying to find that big break or try. It comes from just making something undeniably good. I feel like we're peas from the same pot because (laughs) I've been saying the same thing lately. I've been talking about it on the podcast. I've been just saying it to people I know that I I think very differently. I used to say I'm chasing this or I'm wait. I don't look at that way now. I don't say I'm making this short film. So then that'll lead to this next thing. I say, no, I'm treating this like it's going to be the last thing I'm ever going to do. And the most important thing I'm ever going to do because that's what it is. Yeah. It's about right now. It's about the moment. Yeah. You can't think too much into the future as far as like your plans, because you never know where that thing is going to come from, where that opportunity, where the, who's going to come knocking, who's going to see your, you just never know. So I think the goal is to always be making something that is just your best. Like you said, I'm making this, it's going to be the last thing I make. And that's, you just keep doing that. And this is not a bit, it's not really rewarding financially, this industry sometimes. Yeah. What is your advice to people? Because I know a lot of people want to be filmmakers and stuff, but what do you tell people who are like, oh, I want to do this for a living or as a job? I actually tell people, because I mentored film students professionally for a number of years through a program called Film Connection. And what I tell people is it's actually easier to be a filmmaker if you have other some other sort of form of revenue coming into your pockets, especially when people are first starting out. I actually encourage them to work in some other sort of field or any sort of field to make money while they're getting going as a filmmaker Mm -hmm. until they get more opportunities where they could just start supporting themselves more and more as a filmmaker. I, and listen, case in point myself, I, I don't have a quote unquote day job at this point, but I do a number of sort of freelance and I have a number of streams of revenue that I have going to support my indie film lifestyle. <laughs> same, same here. <laughs> yeah. Thank God I'm fortunate to not also yeah. have a day job anymore technically, but I've cr- made this my day job. Yeah. Uh, especially, yeah. But also with my organization and like giving back. But yeah, I had a, I was climbing the corporate ladder for a while before I was like full time. And that's only because my job, like cl- the company closed. Yeah. But uh, you need to have that because you don't want to be, sh- it's hard to be creative when you're like stressed over money. Listen, <laughs> I, that that's what I was telling the film students. It's hard to be a filmmaker if you can't even afford to attend a film festival. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that. And then that creates an unneeded stress. I think this is something I've talked about too with people. There's this myth of the starving artist and it's really hard to become an artist if, if you really don't know when your next meal is going to come in. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> It really is. But you don't have to starve because we live in a, it's so accessible now. And it's like more accessible. And it's yeah. way more accessible. You can do both, especially if you don't have children. Especially, you can yeah. do both. And I have, uh-huh. I'm a mom too with everything that I do. I'm a mom also. Yeah. And I'm still able to do what I do. So you don't have an excuse, if, especially if you don't have kids. Like you have, you can moonlight, you have another job. Use that job to support your filmmaking lifestyle. Like you it's the best way to go because if you're not worried about money, if you know where you're going to eat, now you can be creative. Now you can start taking those lived experiences and turning them into art because you can't really be a filmmaker if you don't have anything to talk about or a story to tell or what's your message. Like, 
I don't think I'm a filmmaker for the sake of just being a filmmaker. Like, I have a story to tell. I have a message. I have things that I've experienced that I want to share with the world. And I think, like we talked about, like, it's my duty to get these things out. And Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So, Christina, where could people follow along with you and support your work and check out your stuff? Yes, okay. You can find me on Instagram or TikTok at C-Rich Media. I, oh, you can also go to my website, crichmedia.com or thebronxfilminitiative.org. And if you are a filmmaker that is interested in working with young people, giving back, we do hire filmmakers that are just interested in working with kids. But you have to have an interest of working with young people. But if you are looking to get more experience in the industry while giving back, Tap in with us on Instagram at Bronx Film Initiative, or you can send us a message through our website at www.bronxfilminitiative.org. Nice. Or you can email info at bronxfilminitiative.org if you want to get in contact with us as well. Wonderful. (laughs) Christina, I so appreciate you being on the Film Situation Podcast. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Film Situation Podcast hosted by Zef Kota. Today's guest was Christina Richardson. Music by Yuri Ryback. Executive producer Ray John Balai.